0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, Please, will you grab your Bibles and open them with me to the book of James? We pick up our study in the the letter written by James, and we're going to be in chapter four today, and we're going to read together now, James four, verse one to six. Let's pray. Our Lord, it is exactly this promise that we rely upon this morning, that you give more grace, that your grace is greater than all our sin. You promise that you give grace to the humble. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us this morning. That whatever pride is in our hearts that would cause us not to hear from you today, not to respond to your life giving word, that you would deal with that pride in our hearts, that you would break through the hardness of our hearts, that you would soften us by your Spirit and that you would bring life to your church, we pray. Amen. This week, while I was driving the kids to school, I was able to listen to a sermon on this passage by a pastor named Michael Kruger. Uh, I thought his opening sermon illustration was so good, I decided to steal it, and I ripped off his sermon title at the same time, just for good measure. He tells the story of a man named William Golding. In 1954, he tried almost unsuccessfully to find a publisher for a novel that he'd written. He was rejected 21 times by 21 different publishing houses before a small publishing house picked up his novel, and even there, the first reader rejected it as well. The novel is about a, a group of preteen boys who found themselves stranded on a deserted island after their plane crashes. There are no adults around and they have to survive while they hope for rescue from a passing ship. During their attempt to survive, they start and affect this primitive society with order and rules so that it wouldn't be every boy for himself. But it isn't long before problems begin to arise. The fabric of their little society begins to tear. There's fighting and factions that leads to terrible violence on that island. And much of the fighting centers around this uh, pair of reading glasses. It's their only means of producing fire so that they can cook food and, and have a signal fire that would signal down any passing ships. It's their hope of escape. And this pair of spectacles tears them apart. It's a book that the Time magazine has called one of the most important books of the 20th century. And you probably know which book I'm talking about, right? It's called The Lord of the Flies. Why is that book so important? Well, the 20th century was one of the most brutal in the history of mankind. More death, more war, more violence than all the centuries before it. The book says something about us. That society doesn't like to acknowledge but if we are honest with ourselves is true. You see, we like to think that if we could solve all those social problems out there, solve the the things in this world that are not right, then everything would be okay. Golding says, wait just a minute. Even if we could start over with a clean slate, with the innocence of youth, it wouldn't be long before we devour one another again. Our problem is not forces out there. Our problem is in here. It's in our nature. Of course, the Bible agrees with this. And it's a point that James makes in his passage today. Chapter 4 begins with this problem that he addresses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? You look around in the world and you don't have to look very long before you see this. Quarrels and fights. It's not difficult. Wherever we turn from the Twitterverse where people who have never met tear one another apart, to your workplace where you see people gossip and lie and destroy to get ahead. Even to the home, many homes are smoldering ruins or powder kegs just waiting for the smallest of sparks. Unfortunately, our propensity for conflict doesn't disappear within the four walls of the church you may have heard the story of the, the mother who went to pick up her daughter from school and she picked up her daughter and a group of her friends who were coming over for a, a play date and they were playing outside while the mother was working inside and, and she heard this great commotion, raised voices, heated arguments. The girls were shouting at one another. So she rushes outside to see what's going on. She says, girls, what's going on here? And her daughter responds, oh, don't worry, mom, we're just playing church. The problem James addresses in this letter is still a problem today. But James wants to pass to us into something else. So you remember how chapter 3 began and he said we are to guard our tongues. Be careful how we speak to one another. And then it continued, the last time we were in James, in chapter 3, verse 13 to 18, James presents two ways to live. The first way is worldly wisdom. It's based on bitter envy and selfish ambition. It leads to disorder, James says, and every vile practice. But there's another way, wisdom from above that is pure, he says. It's peaceable, gentle, open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And it results in a harvest of righteousness that is sown in peace by those who make peace. Church, this is what we want. We want to sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. And how are we to do it? James is going to help us over the next few weeks in chapter 4. And he hits hard again today, as he has done so often in this letter. He gets down to the nitty-gritty. The problem is not out there. You cannot look across the aisles and see the problem. The problem is in here. The problem behind all our relational turmoil is our passions, he says, our desires. But if the problem is in us, in our own desires, the solution James is going to show us is outside of us, in a gracious God, before before whom James calls the church to humble itself. It's an important journey that we now take together. This passage is going to make us uncomfortable, but by His goodness, God can use it to do some surgery on our hearts, and I pray to lead us more into that, that church of peace and love, that we may reap a harvest of righteousness. I have three headings From this text today, the first in verses 1 to the second part of verse 2 is this. We see the reason for our people problems. The reason for our people problems. Let's read this together. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You get the sense from James's language here that he wants to convey the seriousness of relational fallout between Christians. And in the church, the word for quarrels is better translated wars. What causes wars among you? And even there, we might be a little bit detached from this language, living here in South Africa. We're not part of any wars. Wars happen to people out there in different countries. But those who have seen war, have been in a city when it's been bombed, or who have seen the loss of life that war brings, this language hits home. James even speaks here of murder. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And scholars concoct scenarios. How in the first century were Christians actually killing one another? It's not impossible. And maybe in your quarrels and fights, you've actually felt like murdering someone. But I don't think it's actual murder that James has in mind here. I believe the words of Christ are ringing in his ears. Matthew 5 21 and following Jesus says, You have heard it that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. James here is speaking, I believe, like John when he was speaking in, in 1, 1 John. He also likened our failure to love one another to actual murder, 1 John 3, 11 to 12. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. James is speaking in strong terms. He wants us to see, recognize, acknowledge the state of our hearts and mourn appropriately this truth about us. And so if he has our attention, he can supply the answer to the question he's asked. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Why do conflicts exist in our lives We want to answer in this way. This is what they did. This is what they did to me. And James says, hold on, not them, you. The reason for the conflict in your life, the passions that are at war within you. James would have us acknowledge the Romans 7 truth about ourselves, that we may be new creations in Christ, but this new creation is at war. With a sinful nature that is still there, that still exists, that still drives us. We want to serve Christ, but the truth is so often we act out in a service of self. James is asking in this passage, Are you ready to consider the truth that your own sinful desires are the cause of the relational strain in your life? Alec Matea in his commentary says this, All our desires and passions are like an armed camp within us, ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification on which we have set our hearts. Now, you may be squirming in your seat. It was uncomfortable for me preparing this sermon this week. Maybe you're thinking, I wonder what problems they had. Why would James get all hot and bothered in this way? And again, scholars try to think about what the situation might have been. What's going on? But why do we wonder what problems they had? And so if we knew what they were fighting about, maybe we'd be able to justify our own wars, the wars that we're engaged in. We say, surely they just didn't have the reasons to fight that I have. I'm not saying that there never is a reason for conflict. Sometimes conflict is necessary. But James in this passage doesn't share any situation. He doesn't give us the reasons. It's besides the point. His concern is not with the nature of the quarrels, but with the selfish spirit in which those quarrels were being fought. James would have us come to our conflict, the relational struggles we have in our lives with the right question about all of our conflict. And that question is this, what do I actually want? What do I want? That's different to the question, what am I fighting about? What is the event that led to this? What are the deep-seated desires beneath what I'm fighting for? And if we're really honest with ourselves, more often than not, we'll find that our reasons are selfish, not noble. We want people's approval. So we lash out or get defensive when we're confronted. We desire position or recognition or attention. And so other people become the competition or the obstacles in our way. We are envious, so we put others down. Or we want to be seen to be right, so we gossip and put others in the worst light possible. We desire revenge. So it's actually bitterness that is nurtured in our hearts day after day, week after week, year after year, and we plan and we scheme. We think we just deserve better. We feel underappreciated, and so we act and we speak from wounded pride. And I no doubt the sins of others play a role in our conflict, but the truth is this. We act out our own sinful passions and desires, all the while oblivious or self-justifying and righteousness and peace are sacrificed on the altar of personal gain in our lives. What do we want? You may say, "I I want Christ to be glorified. I want him to be glorified in my life. Then you need to learn how to act and speak out of love for one another If we want Christ to be glorified in the church, then we need to love one another. God forbid we use the glory of Christ as a front, nothing more than a front for the black market of sinful desires that is going on in our hearts. We've got to be serious, church. Heed the warning that God gave to Cain before we commit murder. Cain had grown envious of his brother. Abel had the favor of God and Cain did not. And God came to him and asked him another way to pose the question, why are you angry? Why are you angry? And then he warned, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. Well, after giving reason for the people problems we have in the church or that were in the church, James raises the stakes a little bit. Sinful desires don't just cause damage in our horizontal relationships with one another. They damage our relationship with God. So number two, let's look at the reality of our bigger problem with God in 2b to 5. In answer to the question, why are there wars among you? James answers your passions, war within you. And now he shifts the focus. The indictment grows. He speaks of passions again. But now he speaks of them in relation to the sign that exists that there is actually relational fallout between you and God. That sign in verse 2 to 3 is that you have a prayer problem. Let's read this together. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There are two cases that James is speaking of here. The first person is one who is frustrated by lack You do not have, James says, and the reason is because you do not ask. Now, what is James saying in this verse? It is true that sometimes we don't receive because we just don't ask. We don't come to God humbly. We don't come boldly before the throne of grace. We don't trust our Father who loves to give good gifts. We don't ask persistently like Jesus told us to in Luke 11. But I believe James is speaking of a different kind of prayerlessness. A prayerlessness that comes because you're living for things that don't honor God. You want things. Your heart is devoted to things. And really, you don't feel comfortable praying about those things. This person's heart is bound to temporal to the earthly comforts and conveniences. Desire is not bound to God, but to this world. And so why would he bother praying? It's true that you could spend your life on many things that never require prayer. They never require the, a risk taken for the kingdom of God. They never see you engaged in things and activities where you desperately need the Spirit of God. If you are living for your own convenience, and your own comfort, why would you ever come to God and say, God, I need your help, I need your spirit? When you spend your life on selfish desires, of course your prayer life is going to be hindered. Sam Aubrey in his commentary says, prayerlessness is a sign that someone is trying to run things on their own strength, for their own sake, and under their own authority. But church, make Christ's glory your passion the good of your family, your friends, your church, the good of the lost. Make Christ's mission your passion. Make it your desire to live each day in the joy of walking with God, and you will find your heart free in prayer. That's the first case. The second person James has in mind here doesn't even bother to hide his selfishness or maybe he's not aware of it. James says you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This person wants all for self and worse than that doesn't seem troubled asking God to fund his idolatry. The All Souls minister Rico Tice puts it this way. We turn God into a divine waiter. He is there to deliver our daydream to us. We touch base with Him on a Sunday. We put our order in via prayer. We might have a de- give a decent tip in the collection plate, but God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need, and we get furious with Him when He doesn't deliver. If you pray this way, you might as well be asking, God, please sponsor the unfaithfulness of my heart. It's like a prayer that was apparently found, written by a a man named John Ward, a member of the British Parliament after he died, and this prayer was found written out. "'O Lord, Thou knowest that I have mine estates in the city of London, and likewise that I have lately purchased an estate in the county of Essex. I beseech Thee to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and from earthquake.' And as I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beg of thee likewise to have an eye of compassion on that county. As for the rest of the counties, thou mayst deal with them as thou art pleased. That prayer maybe has a tinge of humor to it, and we know it's obviously off. We can see that, but it's less obvious when we are controlled by sinful and selfish passions, seeking to slake our soul thirst on everything that isn't God anything but Him. How are we to gauge our hearts this morning? We can start maybe with this question, and maybe this is a question to ask of yourself today. Am I prevailingly content in God, in life? Am I content in Christ, or am I just generally dissatisfied, generally discontent? Frustration and discontent often reveals the truth that you have a desire, problem. I'm not trying to discourage you here. There are times where we are disappointed. That's part of life, and we are able to bring those disappointments to God. And And I'm not trying to discourage you from pouring out your heart to God. There are things that are good to want and good to bring before our Father. It's Not wrong, for example, to want to be married if you're not married. It's not wrong to want to have kids or for your business to succeed. It's not wrong for you to want your church to flourish and grow. But in all of these desires and everything that we ask for and bring to our Father, we come this way. God, this is my desire. I do want this. And I know that you are a good Father, that you can give it if you want. But even if you don't, my hope is in you. My greatest desire is for you. If that is true, you can say, like Paul, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. You can echo the heart of the psalmist. Listen to these few psalms and test your heart by this today. Psalm 37:4 Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 34, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Is this true of you? Psalm 16, 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 41, 1 to 2, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Psalm 63, verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. James wants us to understand what is at stake. That the, the prayer problem we maybe have is a symptom of our heart problem, a, an allegiance problem, an affection problem. See now in verse 4 how he ramps up the stakes his tone. He says this to the church, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Douglas Moog calls this one of the most strongly worded calls to repentance in all of the New Testament. And this is in a letter where again and again and again, he's addressed them as my brothers my dear brothers. Now he says, you adulterous people. What is he saying in this verse? What is this friendship with the world? James is not saying that you can't have friends out there in the world. In fact, we are called to have friends in the world for the sake of the the mission of Christ. What he's talking about here is having a shared mindset and outlook with the world. Shared values, shared interests, shared goals with the world. It means having our hearts set towards the world and not to Christ. Church, there is a worse outcome to unbridled passions having control than factions and quarrels in the church. This is worse. Enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so daily, we, we come to a crossroads. Every single day, we come to the crossroads where we, there's the way of the world, the path of the world, what the world is pursuing, and there is God. We could join the world in its selfish pursuits or pursue God in obedience. James is saying to this church, he's saying, do you honestly think that you can adopt a spirit of opposition to God? That you can choose to cultivate heart attitudes and affections that are dishonoring to him. That you could engage in pursuits that are contrary to his will. That you could make the self-pleasing life with its desires your daily bread and butter and not become his enemy. We need to hear this tone. I'm preaching this way because this is the way the passage is set out you adulterous people, literally you adulteresses. He's call, this calls to mind the cry of the prophets throughout the Old Testament in their accusation against Israel. Like listen to this, Isaiah 57 verse 8, behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. That's your shrine to your idols. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it and you have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them, those, those idols. You have loved their bed and you have looked on nakedness. This is a strong analogy that James is using. What a mess is caused in marriages by unfaithfulness. All the intimacy and all the friendship that's meant to mark that relationship is fractured. Should our God just tolerate the unfaithfulness in our hearts? Mm -mm. It's good for him to demand our whole heart, just like a husband and a wife. It's right for them to demand the heart of their spouse. This might be what James is saying in verse 5. It goes on, he says, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously, over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. If the ESV is correct in this verse, James is saying here, there's not one verse that he's pointing to that we can see, but there's a big theme in Scripture that teaches that there's an appropriate jealousy that God has for the hearts of His people. The Spirit that He made to dwell in us was made for Him, by design, friendship with God, that is the path to peace and joy. That's the green pastures that David is talking about in Psalm 23. Verse 5 is a difficult verse, though, one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament. So I do want to show you um, this, this alternate reading as a possibility. My tablet starts working again. Let me read it from there. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? So we're not sure from this verse who the subject of the the verse actually is. If it's God himself that he's jealously yearning over the spirit that he made to dwell in us or the the jealousy that is spoken of is uh, the jealousy of our spirits. Uh, From the one sense, from my perspective When he says, do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says? I think that makes more sense with the first reading, because that there, that he yearns jealously over the Spirit, is a a grand biblical theme. I think that might be what James is pointing to. Um, But the problem is, and why there's equal support for the other reading, is that there's no time in the the Bible anywhere where the word that James uses for uh, yearns jealously here, uh, there's no time ever that it's used positively. In fact, when the jealousy of God is spoken of, it's always a different word. So that might be uh, the second reading there. If, if that's um, what James is speaking of here, he's calling for a deep introspection from the church, saying, be aware of the reality of your heart, sober reflection on the state of our hearts. He's saying, we need to be serious, church, about the signs, the relational fallout in our lives, the, the, in our hearts. We need to be serious about those signs. And maybe this passage for you today has been a sober reality check. Maybe you consider the relationships in your home, relationships you have in the church. Maybe you know your life has tended toward selfish pursuits or toward frustration or toward discontentment, and that points to a friendship with the world. I don't want to leave you feeling overwhelmed or hopeless at all, and that's not where James leaves us. There is hope. And he's going to spell this hope out more next week as we come together in verses 6 to 10. But for today, let's just close by touching on it. Number three, the reason for our hope in verse 6. The reason for our hope. Spiritual adultery. Enmity with God, James's rebuke in this passage is a strong one, and it's a clear one, but it is also a loving one. James loves the church. It doesn't do to pay lip service to friendship with God, while the reality in our hearts is that our true loyalty lies in the world and in its values. That may be true of you. You might have gone to church your whole life, but if you are honest with yourself, and you looked at the state of your heart. Really, your heart is in the world. It doesn't belong to Him. But there is hope. How do we become friends of God? What makes us a friend of God? It's not through our spiritual fortitude. It's not through the exertion of our will or our efforts. It's all through His grace. Church, when did Christ die for us? Romans 5 verse 10, While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Enmity, animosity, this language, estrangement, is not removed by my faithfulness. It's removed by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And how am I kept a friend of God? One Peter one, kept by the power James has revealed in this passage. He can still say in verse six, gives more. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's more grace for us today. Matthias says in his commentary, what comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand than He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit, put self first. We cannot forfeit our salvation for there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. We may play false to the grace of election, contradict the grace of reconciliation, overlook the grace of indwelling, but he gives more grace. Are we threatened by desires that run contrary to friendship with God, that betray peace in the community? Church's grace is greater today than all our sin. May we sit today under that grace, under the fountain of it, and receive it. Are you held captive, perhaps, by a need for praise, or by the fear of man, or by the desire to be right, or by the tug of bitterness in your heart, or by a desire for revenge? Cry out for grace today to be satisfied by His love, by His peace, by His reign, the praise of His name. Have you lived a slave to self, your passions hurting those around you? Cry out for grace today, the grace of, the, of desiring the unfading glory of Christ over the unsatisfying shadows of this world. Are you maybe today finding it difficult to wait on God's timing for relief, for answer to your prayer? Bring your prayer as a simple prayer to the Father today. Oh Lord, there are disappointments that sometimes threaten to steal my joy, but you have promised more grace. Your grace is enough for me today. You've promised that you give grace to the humble. Help me humble myself before you and be satisfied this week by your goodness. In closing, I want to share this as a prayer. I found this an um, old hymn this week written by Annie Johnson Flint. Listen to the words. Let's bow our, our heads together. Listen to these words and let them seep into your soul. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more grace when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done. When we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits, His grace has no measure, His power has no boundary known to men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. O oh Lord, we do need Your grace. And we cry out for your grace today, that you would help us to find our satisfaction in Christ, that we would be content with what you have given to us, that we would be content with our lives before you. Father, we do sometimes face disappointment in relationships or disappointment in the things that happen. Father, we know that you promise grace to those who are humble. So, Lord, we ask that you help us not to rail against what's going on or not to rail against you and our disappointments, but to come before you humbly, knowing that you are good in everything that you do, that you hold our lives in your hands, that you hold our church in your hands. Lord, help us to live, to speak to act not for selfish desires that are in us, but for the glory of Christ in everything that we do. Help us sincerely to desire that His name would be magnified, regardless of what happens to our name. And Jesus, we pray, we pray sincerely that more and more you would be glorified in this place among those people who do love you and are waiting for you. Amen.